0: Welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I am your host, Hillary Jones. So there was big news yesterday as police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted for the death of George Floyd last summer. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I'm just going to say that, you know, this is a move in the right direction towards greater accountability. But obviously we have a lot more work to do, especially white people. This continues to happen. And just hours before the verdict, there was the police killing of 16-year-old Micaiah Bryant. It is systemic, and it is the system doing what it's designed to do. So, hey, other white people, yes, we need to read books, we need to educate ourselves, but also we need to talk to our kids about racism, we need to talk to our family and friends, and we need to advocate for a change in our neighborhoods, workplaces, churches, public policies, representation, all of those places as well. Uh, And of course, all of this is done at the direction of Black folks who are the ones who intimately know what change should look like. All right, so today, moving, moving forward in our conversation today, we're going to do things a little bit differently. For the first time ever, I am doing a replay of an interview, specifically my interview with June Millington, who is the guitarist in the first all-girl band signed to a major label, Fanny. I'm doing this for a few reasons, but I'm partly doing it to bring attention to the fact that uh, there's a push to get Fanny into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I am also doing it because June is going through chemo right now and she rules and I wanna celebrate her and her work. And also it was just her birthday and she's doing a fundraiser for the Institute for Musical Arts, the nonprofit music camp that she runs with her partner Anne. And, of course, I think June is hilarious and great and just has a ton of good stories to share. So I hope more folks have a listen to the interview and if you've already heard it, it's worth a re-listen. I'll provide links to the Fannie Hall of Fame Facebook group and a link to donate to the IMA in the show notes as well. In addition, after the interview, I've added some new content that I know really gets folks going. I'm going to talk about the nagging wife guitar meme. We discussed it a bit in the last episode with Kieran Cheerhorn of Big Ear Pedals, and it's something that comes up a lot. So I decided to, you know, get really into it, into the problems with it through the lens of both healthy relationships and adversarial gender roles in our society. All right, I want to thank some of Midriff's fabulous sponsors. So first, Earthquaker Devices. Recently, Earthquaker has been highlighting a number of folks using pedals in places you don't normally see them. So, namely with violins and cellos, different things like that, I just love a non-traditional pedal usage. Uh, They also shared a blog by Midriff guest Barb Morrison with things to consider when picking a producer, a video uh, with Eloise from Linda Lindas playing the double spires in just a way that is just so joyous, I love it so much. Uh, Sylvia Matthews uh, Studio Go Boom series, just so much good content as always. And of course, great pedals, great people. You can check out Earthquaker and all of their rad pedals handmade in Akron, Ohio at earthquakerdevices.com. I want to thank, once again, Studio 121. Skylar can help you with all of your audio needs at a super reasonable price with a quick turnaround, editing, production, recording, jingles, podcast music, whatever you need, she can help you do it. Find Studio 121 on Instagram at officialstudio121. Also, Skylar recently interviewed me for the brand new Motif Magazine podcast Between the Notes. If you'd like to hear our conversation, check it out. These sponsors support the podcast and I hope you support them too. You can find links in the show notes to sponsors and to the Midriff Instagram and Facebook pages and website too. So if you followed the podcast or rock history sort of generally, you are likely familiar with June Millington. But if not, here's a little bit more about Fanny. So in addition to being signed by Reprise Records in 1969, they'd had played with the likes of The Kinks. They performed on The Tonight Show. They even had two top 40 singles on Billboard's Hot 100. She's been involved with a number of other projects over the years, either like as a musician or a producer. And after Fanny disbanded in 1975, she went on to form the IMA, as I'd mentioned with her partner, Anne Hackler, in 1996, which was sort of the precursor to the Girls Rock Camp move-in. She is super rad and just a real treat to talk to, and I think you're gonna love it. Okay, here's my interview with June. <laughs> Welcome to Midriff. So great to be here. Thank you so much for being here. It's a beautiful uh, day outside in New England. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to be part of this. Cool. So for folks who somehow might not know you, which (laughs) seems wild in my brain, but here we are. Can you introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, a little bit about yourself and your background
1: with music? Okay. I am June Millington. I'm a very simple she. I'm Filipina-American. My mother's Filipina. My dad was actually from Vermont. They met right after World War II. I was raised in the Philippines so I was 13. I'm the eldest of seven. And I'm bicultural and biracial, which is a very specific slot. Um, it's hard enough to be one, but to be both— Plus, my whole body is divided in halves because I don't hear on my left side and I don't have equilibrium on that side. And I didn't know that. I didn't know about the hearing till I was 13 and the equilibrium till I was 25. So I have a very interesting way of sort of synthesizing my reality and picking up information. In other words, I think pretty much I put it in my body rather than just and just remembering. It's actually in my body uh, embedded and I can retrieve that.
0: It's almost like you have a a different sense or you've had to adapt, adapt. I did. I mean, my brain
1: absolutely had to make it up because, I mean, I didn't know I didn't hear on my left side. So how am I going to deal with that? And I subconsciously, of course, my brain did. And with music, you have to use both sides of the brain for uh, one side's pitch and one side's rhythm. I think it's really fortunate that I picked up on music or we picked up on music, my sister and I, because it just was absolutely wow. Everything was glorified, you know.
0: It was all there waiting for you.
1: That's right. That's right. I still Mm -hmm. feel that way. Nothing Mm -hmm. has changed. I'm like five (laughs) and I'm 13 and I am 16 and we're starting a band. You know, it's all one thing.
0: (laughs) And I assume that, the, like, your ability to kind of integrate all of that has just increased over the years. And I think connection so. connection to
1: your body. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have yeah. intuitive hearing. I made that up. But um, I hear things that other people don't hear, number one. And so they, they uh, you know, I've had the, the phrase said to me so many times, you're crazy. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, that means I'm different, mm-hmm. actually, and they don't know how to parse me. <laughs> but I'm having to parse them in, and the entire world on my sort of own made-up terms. And uh, so that puts me even more as an outsider because here I am in the U.S. as an outsider. We moved here when I was 13. And then plus learning music as as an outsider and having to figure out has been pretty interesting. And now I find it totally fascinating.
0: Well, I was wondering about this too, because mm-hmm. I've, I've heard you talk about like, like being bicultural and uh, biracial before. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how that kind of like, because obviously that has some sort of impact you know there's obviously a lot of challenges related to that presumably Mm -hmm. um but also the outsider status i wonder if in some ways that allowed you some
1: flexibility oh you're absolutely right In, in a lot of ways it's an advantage because whatever i get interested in then i get sucked into the central mystery and to me uh music is the endless mystery And so, Mm. yeah, yeah. And so uh, my outsider status allows me to take a look at it kind of cerebrally. You know, I mean, I think what I'm saying is that if I'm interested in something, I I study it as an outsider. I want to know all about it. For example, the blues. We never heard the blues in in Manila. Trust me. (laughs) That was Mm -hmm. the last thing I was thinking about in the Philippines. So learning about blues and learning about uh, the America, what I consider our best export, which is music, original music, mm-hmm. has is it just holds endless fascination for me. And I'm really kind of glad that I was so shy because I was bicultural, so I didn't have very many friends. Nobody except my sister and family understood our exact problem. Me and Jean were actually the, the closest in that. So, uh, you know, as an outsider, I didn't speak very much. I was very shy. So music allowed me uh, an entree into having conversation. And then I could get louder once I got into lead guitar. I could keep turning up. And as I turned up, I understood the contours of what I was doing. You know, and that's one of the things that I pass on in our rock and roll girls camps. You don't have to be super loud to have a loud presence. That's another thing. Right. So you can express yourself in, in, in a, a well-shaped, contoured way. It's your sound. It's your language. And I have chosen my language, you know. Uh, a lot of people mm-hmm. seem to like it, so I'm, I'm really happy about that, you know, because I, I feel like I do sort of have my own sort of hilltop that I <laughs> beam from. <laughs> you know, this is my hilltop. It's the June Millington uh, hilltop. Can you deal with it?
0: It's interesting too because I I think the the shyness piece too is fascinating mm-hmm. to me and I feel like a lot of musicians have this thing where it's like mm-hmm. they 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 feel like either as an outsider or somebody who's shy or something like that and then yeah. music provides this sort of like tool or it facilitates like a progression of some sort because obviously you're not shy now how has that progressed over the years
1: well uh, I would put key in in place of the word tool. So mm. once the key was in that lock and I turned it or we turned it, me and my sister uh, were on the musical journey together always, then it w- it opened a little bit and just that little glimpse that we got of the possibilities, you know, the possibility of entering this world, this possibility of listening, and then furthermore, the possibility of being listened to. And that happened within the first six months of getting to Sacramento for Manila because I wrote a song hmm. called uh, Miss Wallflower 62. <laughs> and uh, that so was that you? Was, we got, yes, we got yeah. here in 61 and we did that at the junior high, uh, you know, teen show, variety show with two other girls. It was four girls singing. Here I am by the wall again, waiting for this dance. And let me tell you, people would stop me in the hall and say, I really like that. And then just rush on the way they do now. When they just stop me in the store or on the street or wherever, when I could go out and they say, I love your hair, and just rush on, you know? Mm-hmm. So somehow, you know, I, I've touched upon this way of, of um, uh, not really communicating, but beaming to the outside world, something which gets me a one line response, which totally thrills me. I love your hair, tells me everything. It tells me that they realize that I let my hair turn completely white as a political statement. Mm-hmm. They don't need to tell me that they know that I know that they know. So somehow these one word, you know, communication, I mean, one sentence communications just mean so much and they and they carry so much value. I, I don't need to have whole conversations with people. I'm still kind of shined that way. So can you talk a little bit about for folks who are,
0: might not be familiar um, with the IMA, what that's about?
1: It's a nonprofit institute that my partner Ann and I started. Well, we started to talk about it in 85. And mm-hmm. in 86, we uh, put together a board and we decided we, we were going to actually start. So it was me and Ann, and believe it or not, Angela Davis. So from right there, you can tell that we're a totally subversive organization. <laughs> <laughs> and Roma Barron, who is Laurie Anderson's producer. So when you think of Roma, she's been on from the jump. Uh, when I called her, somebody said, hey, you should get, get a hold of Roma Barron. And I called her, and she said yes right away. But when you think about what she's contributed to music in terms of, I think she's as important as Thomas Dolby, but of course mm. is not spoken of sure. <laughs> very much. Which kind of, you know, pisses me off, but um, that's the world we live in, you know. So anyway, um, and now we have uh, Leslie Ann Jones, who, if you know, I think she has Mm -hmm. like five Grammys. She runs Skywalker in Marin. And uh, we have Leanne Unger, who teaches at Berkeley. You know, and we have um, on the board All also is Catherine Wilmore. And, and the reason why I asked her is because she was one of the vice presidents at MIT and she's a good friend. But since we are intent on passing this on, right, it, it just seemed so, uh, it, you know, it seemed incumbent to learn about how about institutional memory. For sure. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested because in because I don't think you can just say, oh, we're going to hand this down to the future, gener- the next generation. Mm-hmm. You have, there are a number of steps you have so, to do. You so, have to be so,
0: systemic yeah. for sure. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right.
1: So we exist to help all women in music in any way we can. And that's a huge, broad statement. And for that reason, most of the people whom we women we talked to about it in the beginning said, oh, no, that's too big. You just can't, you know, you have to contain it or something like that, but I'm not the type of person to to be contained. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, Anne, uh, you know, uh, had the same idea. So we continued that. So the the thing is, is to help all women in music in whatever way we can in the moment. And let me tell you, that was a big thing to learn because, you know, you want to do everything all at once. Mm -hmm. You want to do all these classes all at once. You want to buy an old school that's unused and start classes, you know. But actually... Within a couple of years, I came up with this um, mantra of my own, which was do what you can when you can. Mm -hmm. So that means you have to actually, we get back to listening. You have to listen to what people are saying that they need. And it totally has worked for us because, you know, 86 to now, we're, we're, I think, bigger and stronger than ever. We planted the seed. We watered it. We definitely give it food and nourishment. And now we have all these girls who, we didn't start off with our rock and roll girls camps, by the Mm -hmm. way, that was not even an inkling in, in our minds. But when we bought this property here in Goshen, Massachusetts in 2001, all of a sudden, Oh yeah, we we could do this. We could do that. You know.
0: How did you? So you started in California and then you moved to
1: Mass, right? Actually, we started in Amherst because Anne was oh, the director okay. got director got of the Women's Center at Hampshire. Yeah, got it. Okay, okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. And so. then we moved. We didn't do any programming here. Then we moved to California because I wanted to be near my family, mm-hmm. and that's when we expanded. And uh, we IMA West ended up being in Bodega, California. We could see the steeple or the church where Suzanne Plachette had her eyes pecked out in the movie The Birds. Whoa. That's Bodega. That's <laughs> Bodega. It looks exactly the same. So rock and roll. That's a fabulous
0: story. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> how has quarantine affected IMA's programming? So I know you're all doing these live streams. Mm-hmm. What else is happening? Mm-hmm. What do you, what, how has this put a hitch in things?
1: Yeah, well, we are switching to virtual camps this summer. And as I know, you know, from just doing this podcast, that mm-hmm. is a huge undertaking. We can't do it in person right now. I mean, there the barn is, you know, with two recording studios right. and all that equipment, but we can't do that right now. So we're switching. We're doing them. Actually, we're not doing as many. Well, we used to have five per summer. Now we're going to have one preteen, one teen, and one recording camp. That makes sense. So that what is what we are working on, you know, pretty much night and day right, right. now.
0: I feel like everybody who's doing this like transition to virtual, it's just so much work. So much yeah. work. It's incredible.
1: right. You know and in some way, you think, really, are we how can we do this? How do we translate the experience of, for example, me, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I'm kind of infamous as a lead guitar player or a member of Fanny, right? Mm-hmm. And we were out there. We popped out in the musical fields quite a while ago. Uh, first band Gene and I started was in late 64. So, you know, we we were in LA with a record deal by 69. So, so but standing in front of the girls and passing on that direct transmission is I feel one of the reasons I'm on this earth. Right. <laughs> so now, uh how are we how are we going to translate that into the virtual thing? So that is our that is our new koan right. actually. You know? Hmm. hmm.
0: Yeah, it's wild because you're spending all this extra time, but you're it's it's so much harder to feel like you're making that same connection, even though you're spending yeah. so much more time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah this IMA thing isn't going to go away because uh, women and girls and music need help in so many ways. Mm-hmm. You know, they need we need well, we need to know about our foremothers. I'm really serious about that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do a foremother series, by the way, on on the net. I'm going to start off with Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yes, I mean, please. I didn't even hear of Sister Rosetta Thorpe till after we moved here. now, what is up with that? That is wrong,
0: yeah, no, I feel the same way. I didn't learn about her mm-hmm. until probably like I don't know ten years ago or something, which is exactly wild there's that's, yeah it doesn't make any sense,
1: yeah, it doesn't I mean sense. it does so and it make... doesn't but yes <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so we're gonna make sense out of that awesome. you know, so you know, passing on what was before and Helping the girls enable themselves to tap into their own creativity because one of the things, of course, that you notice if you're going to do rock and roll girls camp and you guys do girls rock, you, you know that they walk in scared, number one. Most of them don't know each other, mm-hmm. maybe a couple of them with friends, but they, they have to get to know each other as a group. And they have to learn um, to navigate uh, the musical world, which is a very kind of spiritual world. Mm. You know, in in some ways you need to know the markers. You need to know where one is of the beat and you need to know where one is of the chord and one is of the key. Mm -hmm. Those are the three things I teach basically in my class. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, music as a second language. So yes, then, but then, how do you create from there? Because it's not. This is not like you go into school in class. You write down, you know, right. one plus one equals two. You have to experience something else. So that is the waking up that we are in, engaged in, mm-hmm. and I, I take it as a very serious job. I don't know you do too. It's mm-hmm. incredible. The it's a tough job, but the rewards are. You know, you can't, you can't even put a dollar amount on it. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Every time it's just like mm-hmm. you're getting so much more back than, exactly. than you're, you know. Right. Yeah, for sure. It's great. You've told, you've talked a lot about like your transition musically about like going from uke to acoustic guitar to mm-hmm. electric guitar and sort mm-hmm. of like having that progression at, at camp. I'm wondering, cause over the last, like, I don't know, I would say 10 years or so, the uke has really come back again. It's had like a, oh boy, a, a resurgence, right? Yeah, I mm-hmm. remember the first couple of years of camp, or a couple of years in into camp, when everyone was just carrying around a uke, and so, and mm-hmm. initially, I was like, "What mm-hmm. is this about?" And I, and then I realized, like, as you have talked about, like this the. Ease of entry of the uke. Do you have you seen mm-hmm. this transition with with the uke acoustic, electric at your
1: camps? Oh, absolutely, and it it mirrors our own experience in the Philippines. We picked mm-hmm. up a uke at like eight, nine. You know, uh, one of our cousins had one or an uncle, and he said, "Yeah, this is how you tune it." My dog has fleas, and you put one finger down, you got a chord. It's magic, and <laughs> it, it is magic. And then if you're going, it, well, what we were hearing on the radio at the time was pretty much strictly pop music, so. Mm-hmm. Hey, Harry Belafonte. Those are easy songs. Yellow bird. Uh, let's see, uh Neil Sadaka. Calendar. Mm-hmm. I love, I love, I love my calendar girl. You know, and if you know one, six, four, five, basically you got pop music right there. That you right. just take out the six, one, four, five. You got funk and um the blues, you know, rock and roll. if you just have one, the one, let's say a minor chord, not minor or major. Well, you've got uh. And everyday people—that is one chord, people, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know—or just a whole bunch of funk tunes. So you know that becomes the vernacular of what you're doing, and you can do it on ukulele. (laughs) You could do all of it on ukulele. But the one six, so the one six four five, you know, heart and soul is the same as I guess you'd say, my girl. That's one Mm. six four five. (laughs) It's all there. yeah, and even now when I point that out to Anja, go what? <laughs> yeah. She's just shocked every single time. I'm, I, you know, I kind of demystify that for. Her. I'm singing some song. And I go, yeah, that's one six four five.
0: Mine just explodes.
1: Yeah, it's so it's, it's so
0: fun. It's, it's so cool to be able to, I think, like make those things so like the demystification. I think is such yes, a huge piece yeah. of it. Right, right. Because yeah, just, it just—it yeah. sounds—it really does. When you hear things on the radio, it sounds like magic. You're like, "How does yeah. anyone do that?" You know? But
1: exactly. Listen, when I first heard um, "Don't Worry, Baby" by the mm-hmm. Beach Boys, I was in junior high. So how do you? I'm like, how do you start writing a song like, "Well, it's been building up inside of me for that's the one." Mm-hmm. Go to the four. Oh, I don't know to five. How long? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. I mean. It, it 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 was astounding to me because it went directly into my soul. There was no, like, you know, like, go. There was thinking about go. I was at go immediately, uh, you mm-hmm. know, right away. But how do you do that, you know? Right. And I think one of the ways that you do that, unless you're just in a... I, I don't know anybody who's never learned a few songs previously before writing a great song. Right. So I think the steps to the castle is or are learning the the material um, that you love. You know, mm-hmm. I just recently learned um, Don't Dream It's Over, and I've always loved that song. Mm-hmm. I think that was 85. And yeah. I always thought to myself, oh, I got to learn that song. You know, I'm doing this live cast now from IMA, and I was doing it every day for like a month, and I'm just going to do it once once a week. But yeah, <laughs> I, I went on a hunt of songs that I love. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and then I could do, you know, fanny on electric guitar or whatever. But the fact is, I really have that book that I can reference all the time and realize, oh, my gosh, you know, Calendar Girl is way in there. It, it, it walks through walls. Music literally walks through hall, walls into your hearts, joins us all together and just keeps going in community. In community.
0: How, and it's like it's like it provides this sort of, yeah, like a, a cultural reference that people can share yeah. And, yeah. and all of that. Yeah, for sure. So that gets to the access part, right? Because that's yes. part of what you're doing is providing yeah. access through the programming. Yes. And so if some people yeah. feel like they're not able to access that, then that's, that's a problem, right?
1: Yeah. And one thing that I noticed, for example, a lot of the girls who come in and they've had, let's say, a couple of guitar lessons, yet they haven't gotten that piece of linking all these songs through the ages. Like, yeah, that's the one, six, four, five, like mm. sort of having an overview and you do these intuitive leaps of the mind. It sort of gives you a way to do that. And, and, and bing, being, you know, yeah. Wow. And I feel like that is so valuable. You know, you, you do the, you know, you're jumping over tall buildings, <laughs> Right, with yeah. just a couple of pieces of information, mhm,
0: it's like it's like you hear this um this music on the radio or whatever, and you feel this connection to it, you feel like it's mm-hmm. representing you, and then when you're able to replicate it or reflect it back, it's like you're able to
1: it's it's reinforcing mm-hmm. all
0: your identity or something
1: it's yeah. it's so intense, and sometimes there are songs that you just simply don't understand. let me give you an example, whiter shade of pale. what is it about that? I mean it's about that organ and it's about that organ sound and it's about the way that it instantly gets inside you nobody understands all the words to Watershade pale, yet it's one of the edifices of rock music let's mm-hmm. face it it's right. so important
0: take a quick break here to thank some more rad Midris sponsors who help support the podcast. Thank you very much. So first we have DistroKid. If you are a musician and you want to get your music out there to more people, but you aren't sure how, DistroKid can help you. DistroKid basically puts your music into online stores or streaming services such as like iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, and the like. And you get 100% of the income and it allows you to do customized splits to different band members or musicians per song, which is very useful. I think you can see how that would work. And if you have more than one project, you can sign up for that as well. There's different plans available. It's great. I'm excited to get our band back together to actually try it at some point. This would also be, I don't know, a great option for all of your bedroom quarantine projects. You can put them out into the world. Anyway, you can use the link distrokid.com slash VIP slash midriff to get seven a 7% discount. And I'll include the link in the show notes to that as well. And I also want to mention my buddies Adam and Jen up at Stopbox Sonic in Boston. Stopbox Sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration, specializing in effects pedals. They offer a curated collection of companies, large and small, some locally crafted and some assembled from around the world. So Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009 by working collaboratively through one-on-one consultations. They do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. They create a comfortable, judgment-free environment for all musicians where Sonic Experiment is encouraged. And I will say uh, they're really just really good people. They're nice people. And you can, you know, if you're around the Boston area, of course, you can go there once COVID is done, I'm assuming, and uh, and check them out. But they also have a ton of pedals available online. Lots of cool stuff that you maybe won't be able to find anywhere else too. So yeah, check them out on uh, social media or at stompboxsonic.com. And thanks. So what what role then does music gear play in that process?
1: Well, you know, the the music gear can either enhance or be part of your oral message, mm-hmm. okay? A-U-R-A-L. <laughs> so, uh, so for example, if you're playing electric guitar, right, mm-hmm. I always tell people, you know, you ought to be spending hour after hour learning your guitar, you know, all the settings and all the little sounds you can mm-hmm. do with your amp. You should get to the top of the mountain with that. You should know it and... And allow it to, when, when you do that, then you can allow it to surprise you, mm-hmm. you know, like all of a sudden you get some sound. Wow. I didn't know I could do that. Wow. All of a sudden I'm playing everyday people and mm. there's like a new bounce to it, you know? So you got to put in the time and I think your gear is sort of, it gives you the color and the fabric of your clothing. You're going to put that clothing on. You want to look good. You want to feel good. You want to impress people. <laughs> well, hello, right? Mm-hmm. Get with it. Get with it because you don't just dress yourselves out of just whatever, right? You don't pick up rags on the street and go, this is great. Now I'm going to impress people, right? So you have to put time into it. And I, I totally believe that that is part of the the key to having and a musical alphabet <laughs> mm-hmm. it is part of what you put together, you know,
0: yeah, well, and it's and I think it's also like when you really learn your instrument, it, it allows that comfort level where you can kind of pop mm-hmm. in and do things in a way mm-hmm. that feels you know more natural. But also when you're pl- like when you you realize that when you play different instruments or you try something a little bit different that it can elicit mm-hmm. a totally different musical
1: response in yourself, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing is, you know, I I was talking about electric guitar. Yes, Mm -hmm. electric guitar and an amp. But, you know, with an acoustic guitar, same thing, Mm -hmm. you know. So they allow you to have just an edge with yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When you're surprising yourself or you're being surprised, that is just the best, Mm -hmm. you know. And... I love those moments. And and it, there we go back into like the doma- monastic discipline that I sort of conceived that when I thought I wanted to be a nun in the Philippines. <laughs> you, you know, you have to get into that monastic place. It's your space. So you got to go into it. It's not like necessarily that somebody can show you yeah they can show you but you have to experience it and in order to experience it you have to put in the time yeah so that's very important that's actually it's like you know, it's doing homework actually. Well,
0: it's like anybody that has like a really intense like yoga practice or something. It's like yeah, you're getting yeah. to this state where you're able to. I don't, I don't do yoga, but, <laughs> but for folks mm-hmm, who do, like mm-hmm. it feels like you have this ongoing practice and allows you to connect to yourself in a different way in the way that mm-hmm. like the ongoing practice with music can. Like obviously you're learning the skills while it's happening, but you're also connecting, I think, in a different way to yourself.
1: Yeah. And since I pretty much, I mean, I play a lot of instruments, but guitar is what I focus on. So Mm -hmm. let's think of it as yoga of the fretboard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's good. So, yeah. So when I'm looking down at my guitar, there's basically three places that I'm thinking of. One is right where I am. Let's say four frets, right? Mm -hmm. Then you can look down the fretboard and you can look up the fretboard and you have choices every second. Of how you're going to play, or you're going to access a particular chord or a riff or whatever, but you have to practice so much that it can be intuitive, mm-hmm. you right? Know? So you or, can see that
0: next step ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it totally becomes intuitive, and that's I think that's when you get into the meat and the magic of of playing music, you mm-hmm. know. So you
0: have. On your Instagram, or I'm sorry, on your Facebook, you post just so many cool pieces of gear. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. It's all in. Our Every time I too. see it, I'm just like, dang. Uh... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you have a particular setup that you kind of see yourself gravitating to at this point, like a amp or a guitar or pedals, whatever?
1: Yeah. I don't use pedals anymore because it just kind of complicates everything. Yeah, I I went through all the pedals and then I found myself kind of dancing with my pedals more than, you know, actually doing the thing. But Mm -hmm. I mean, I would use a pedal every once in a while, but let's just say I don't. Yeah. So it it pretty much goes down to um, my number one intuitive guitar is my Les Paul Mm -hmm. because I've had it. For so long, and um, I feel like we're partners in everything we do. Mm-hmm. That guitar will pretty much do, and I have a Les Paul Junior that is incredible, also. But but I use that more for slide. Mm. And then my amp is is um. I mean, I have a lot of other sure. guitars. But that, if okay. you ever want to see a cool <laughs> a cool
0: display of instruments, find <laughs> yeah, find, <laughs> yeah. find June on the say. internet. <laughs> yeah, but we're, if we're paring stuff. it down. To the yeah. best, to so your favorite right now. I
1: have, yeah, I have a Fender DeVille, which mm-hmm. I love because you pretty much can get any sound you wanted because there's one pedal, and so there's clean, there's crunch, and there's overdrive. Mm-hmm. So you can set your amp to sort of service all those three with one pedal. Yep, and then of course I can change. You know, I can make the overdrive more overdrive to make it kind of more Jimi Hendrix E if is that I want a hot, to. Is that a hot rod Deville then? Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And right, is that right. I can't
0: remember, is that the four ten or the two twelve? I use the four ten. Got it. Yeah. The
1: two the two twelves are um if you know that you can be playing at eleven most of the time. You know, because they're Two twelves is kind of more not I, I I don't want to say brittle but it's less flexible. There's less give mm. because they're they're bigger. Yuck. The four tenths, boy, you you just have that uh, way of having the give. I don't know how to explain it's it, like but more, I know it more. When nimble. I feel it. Well, that's another way to put it. I know, you know, but um, it just it just gives you a, a, a warmer sound while being just as tough. Nice.
0: Yeah, I I have never played a four ten before, um, but I have definitely found myself falling in love with like a um, super reverb or you know things like that in the past. And I think oh, yeah. if I if I were using it just for myself in my house, I think I would probably mm-hmm. definitely that would be like my a dream amp to have for sure.
1: Well, with a super reverb, you pretty much need to have pedals if you want to yeah. have completely different contour. I I mean I have a super reverb mm-hmm. here. And I'll only use it for certain things because it has a certain sound. Yep. But I I, I use that hot rod because of the instant because flexibility. Of the flexibility, yeah. Really? Yeah. And I've been playing for so long that I I know how to access it and make it work. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if I'm recording or whatever, I I might you know I might get more choosy. I have a a brown tweed amp, the a Fender that I had in Fanny, believe it or not. Mm. It basically has one you know, one volume. Yeah, one knob. Yep. Yeah. So if I want to get that certain sound, sure, I'll uh, plug into that right. and turn it up. Because then, you know, we have a huge barn with high ceilings and we can push a lot of air. That must sound amazing. And so also you got to you gotta know what you're pushing. You got to know the size of your room. You got to mm-hmm. know how the amp will sound sound in, in a church, in a barn, in yep. a club in a in a small intimate living room space you know mm-hmm. i don't think i would bring that hot rod into a, a, a small living room concert i mean mm-hmm. i could but you know <laughs> Yeah. That's a
0: little (laughs) But even having that knowledge of like how do I have them have the amp match the particular room. Um, you know, yeah. yeah. Where in the where in the room do I put the amp in relation to the rest of the band in relation to everything else? Yeah, it's like there's so many different things. Well, I'm kind
1: of I have my slot with that because I'm deaf in my left ear. So I'm always on Mm. the left side of the stage. If you notice on all the fanny videos or pretty much any performance that you can see of me, I'm on the left side of the stage. The reason for that is Um, actually, because of the way that my brain wired, I don't really see the left side that much. I mean, yes, I see it. I have two eyes, but uh, everything is skewed to the right. Mm -hmm. So I I want to feel people on my right. I want to feel the bass. I want to feel the percussion, you Mm -hmm. know, if they're on my left. Yeah, it's, it's, I can make it work, you know, but you're not getting the full experience. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I must say that having Richard Perry as our first full-on producer, um I'm so excited. Um you're so vain, Fanny of course. Um mm-hmm. stony and by I mean on and on and on. Well, he he trained us. He taught us how to record. Mm. And that was when you only had you only started off with four tracks. So, you know, if you're going to sing with three harmonies, which we did an awful lot, so you had to position yourself around the mic, you had to practice mm-hmm. the positioning, you had to know that the low part was going to be slightly lost in the mix. So the low part came in a little bit uh more. So then you know, when you mixed it, it would have a chance of being heard, all that kind of stuff. So yep. I'm I'm attuned to all that. So the recording techniques as You know, as dictated in the early days of tape and four track, Mm -hmm. really translate well to now because I so appreciate Save As. Oh, Right. (laughs) I mean, I love Save As. Do Do you have a tape set up in your studio or no? Well, we have one that hasn't been hooked up yet. I mean, mm-hmm. we've pretty much been, been digital since the uh, end of the nineties. Yeah, but uh, we got an SSL donated by uh, Berkeley School of Music through Leanne Unger, and so and then we recently had some tape machines donated. But with people not being able to come here, we haven't been able to right. hook them up.
0: Not not a huge uh, push right now for that.
1: It's okay. It's yeah. un, you know we do just <laughs> fine. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So as far as your connection with gear, as far as like gender and identities and things like that how has that worked out Mm -hmm. for you
1: well it's been a super long process you know you can only imagine what it was like to go into a music store in 1964 I can only imagine first of all yeah yeah, you can only people cannot I I get asked a lot of questions I have to ask ask them to rephrase the question because it doesn't apply to the (laughs) 60s for example you know Mm -hmm. You know, it was a double-edged sword because, number one, they just assumed you weren't going to be playing that, you know. Mm -hmm. But then you could kind of, you know, kind of stick your head into these little music rooms in your mind and start learning what what it was about. The only people to get information from was guys. So Mm -hmm. I had to be really careful. I had to find the right guys to ask questions, you know, to and Mm -hmm. get information from. So I would say... There were some, in the early days, there were some really nice guys in Sacramento who shared information with me. But once we got to L.A., that is when it all changed. Because I started to meet all oh, these great players. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I became really good friends with Skunk Baxter and Lowell George. Um, even the pedal steel player, Sneaky Pete. I made a point to to become friends with him. Mm-hmm. Um, Elliot Randall of Randall's Island. Kent Henry who was a replacement guitar player in Steppenwolf. From whom I got that Les Paul, oh. I didn't even want to buy it. What, he, he what year is that? What year is that Les Paul, by the way? That Les Paul is a um, fifty-seven. Dang! So it's like a, that's like an actual <laughs> Black Beauty, right? It's not black. It's a sunburst. Oh, but, is it? Okay. Yeah. For whatever reason, and yeah. I, maybe
0: I've just seen black and white pictures and it said, so it looked black to me, but anyway. Yeah. 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 Okay.
1: And the, the color has changed over the years, yeah. you know, because I, you know, but um, so I had some mods done on that by Skunk, who was my guitar repairman. I didn't mm-hmm. even know he played guitar. Laura oh, wow. told me to go, you know, visit this guy. And, uh, and I did. And he was so excitable. I mean, he, he talked me into putting a, a master volume pedal on it, which is really great. Cause now you can do kind of that pedal steel sound. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unique. It's unique. Mm-hmm. And uh, doing it without a pedal. And, and also he talked me into putting bass frets on my strat. I'm like, bass frets. You know, I was really reluctant to go for that. He said, yeah, you'll be able to move faster. Mm. And that was the magic phrase. So I let him do it. And you know what? He was
0: right. Our bass frets, like, cause I know, like a super jumbo fret is like
1: you know a lot of the shredders well, yeah, will use that, those, but... right? But they're lower, they're lower on the fretboard, so you really can, you know. I mean, let's face it, it's like going on uh for a sail on your sailboat on a nice Sunday, you know. And if you if you have that maneuverability to go around the waves and all that, you're flying more, and that's that's. What he did to my guitars really gave me much more maneuverability. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I did interview him um, last year. And that's, as you know, I'm going to start a podcast of my own. June Millington and Friends. And it's just talking about why we do music, how we do music like that. And, um, you know, I asked him about the early work he did. And he just started talking really fast about all that he did. (laughs) Like the old days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Some things never change.
1: Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Elliot Randall's one of the best guitar players I've ever known. You may not know him, Randall's Island. He did the guitar solo in Reeling in the Years. Oh, wow. Damn. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's him. And he got onto that session because he was such a good friend of Skunk's. And, uh, you know, you can see the lack of ego when a guy like Skunk and Steely Dan would invite another guitar player to do right. that solo, to play to in play that song, you know. So those are the things. Part part of what I learned is also to have generosity, you know. Give people the space to do their thing. You know, you don't have to do every lick. In fact, I don't even think I'm that great of a guitar player. I just know a whole bunch of things, and I can just keep kind of gathering them. Every time I pick up a guitar, I think, oh, I don't know anything, you know. I just kind of feel like, oh, and then I just start playing and it just all starts kind of coming back. And then all of a sudden I got a part, you know, mm-hmm. and that is for me, part of the magic of doing it is that I keep gathering. I've got this huge net that I can throw out. I have a couple of set licks, but not so much, And you know, and, and I can fool around and skate around till I have my route, you yeah. know?
0: like you have like a a lick library in your brain and you can just pull from it whenever you need to (laughs) take a, take, take one out for a little while. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I collected licks for, you know, I mean, like a monk for, I would say two to three years in the beginning, when I first started to play lead, Mm -hmm. which was in 69. For example, I learned every lick in rainy night in Georgia. Mm. Do you know that song? Yeah. You do? Yeah. Okay. Well, those licks are, are are totally, you know, they're such a big part of our our library. Mm-hmm. But I sat down and I slowed the record down. You know, I'd, a lot of times I get a 45, I'd slow it down. Yep. Um, and I put the needle back in. It was really laborious. Yeah. But I know those licks and I can I can pull them out anytime, you yep. know, and I feel confident. That's the thing. If, When I give guitar lessons, I, one of the things I say is know what, you know, Mm -hmm. know what, you know, so that you're confident of that. And then you can let go of it. If you don't need it, fine. Something you have
0: to, you you have to be a good librarian, right? You have to know where everything is in your library.
1: That's actually right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great analogy. Yeah.
0: So you, you mentioned that with your, you know, like going to shops obviously was weird and was challenging probably, but I'm wondering if there were, like, particular areas of of the music industry, whether it's, like, you know, music gear or recording or live performances or particular places where you found more challenges or successes than I others. Think, I
1: think recording recording was the hardest thing because girls just were not led into studios at all. So just to be in, led into a studio as a recording artist was almost impossible. And mm-hmm. then you get to uh, maybe being a session musician, which is really... You know, the, and the only person I know who has really succeeded in that is Carol Carol okay. uh, Kay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what a player! And producers. I mean, there are more women producers now, but I would say the recording field was just so impossible to get the time to pay for it. You know, I feel really mixed about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's the area that I feel was the least available. The most available was to start a band, a good all-girl band. You could play the Air Force bases, the teen clubs, um, you name it. Once um, we got past, you know, going to a record, uh, um, uh, music store and buying the gear and we learned how to use the gear ourselves, then we were flying, mm-hmm. you know. But the recording industry, no. it's I mean, $500 an hour was what uh, I, you know I was paying at the Automat. Um, mm-hmm. when I produced Holly near or Chris Williamson, $500 an hour. And yeah. if you got a deal, maybe they go down to 300, right. But, you know, figure that, that out per minute. That's a lot of pressure as a producer, you know, cause I produce those records. Mm-hmm. So I had to make the deal and then I had to get to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, because we, um, our formative years were in the Philippines. I really know how to organize and, and work and do the homework and, cetera, Those habits are really useful, I feel, in the music industry because yeah. you should be organized and you should be able to organize your time. Do you
0: think that that played into you? Because know, there's the stereotype about musicians, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> it seems like you're yes. saying that that your personality or your your what you learned when you were younger led to maybe more success because you 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 defied that stereotype.
1: Yeah. And I would say, you know, there's two things. One is that I have a default setting on, in my body in that I don't have hearing or equilibrium on one side. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I can't really drink, smoke cigarettes and do a lot of drugs. Yeah. And let's, that's not to say that I didn't try. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not to say that I am not wild in my own way. Sure. But I have a way of pulling myself back. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what has really saved me. So it's allowed me to have discipline. Mm -hmm. Like you have to be a little bit more
0: self-protective or something.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, yeah, you can go out on drugs and you can just get crazy and you can get with all these people and blah, blah, blah. But really, I mean, to waste that much time at a certain point, it's kind of a waste of time. Yeah, I would rather get things done, you know, I mean, I remember once, uh, after, at the, right around the time I was quitting Fanny, I was really, I was really depressed and, um, mm-hmm. somebody gave me a red, Do you know what that is? I've heard it's of like, it, but yeah. It's a barbiturate, right? Yeah, and mm-hmm. I tried it and I woke up three days later and I thought, what was that? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I did want to get to sleep, but I didn't want to lose three days of my life, you know? So, right. <laughs> like that. I have this sense of, I don't want to waste time. I got things to do. Yeah. And I'm very serious about that. Totally do you have people
0: in your mind that you think of as your contemporaries when you were in fanny like so obviously you broke a lot of barriers in eight bajillion different ways but like even if folks that maybe were a little bit after you that maybe you identified as contemporaries
1: well i mean bonnie Mm Raid, maria maldar you know, so there were a lot of folks that I ran into. I I, I loved the band Isis. I I mm-hmm. did an a, an album with Bertha was incredible. Bertha was incredible. I thought I could never even stand close to that guitar player. You know, I always had a sense of oh, I'm never going to be good enough. You know, that was <laughs> my my sense of it. And uh, you know, as far as I could tell, they were a gay band or a bi band. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of company. Mm-hmm.
0: So. You know, at at IMA, like you have a lot of girls and I'm obviously with with Girls Rock Camps, I'm familiar with this as well, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the power of collaboration in its Mm -hmm. connection to feminism.
1: Um, One thing that I'll say is that um, I I already knew this because I've been through it in the 60s, that girls in a band are a force to be reckoned with. Do not fuck with girls in a band Mm -hmm. because they are a pod, you know? (laughs) Uh-huh. and And they got estrogen fever, baby, and really, you can't you know if they are if they represent that that's stronger than just about anything else on earth, and I mean that's sincere, just look at moms for heaven's sake, you're a mom you uh-huh. know and and Anne was amazed after the first year or two she realized that bands that were starting in our camps, these women were seriously empowered. No, I hadn't thought of it that way because I just lived it. You know what I'm saying? it just kind of you're flinging yourself on the universe. But that has been a revelation for her. And that has been a centerpiece to our, you know, what we encourage here. If girls start in a band but they don't have the gear, we'll lend them the gear. Right. Oh, yeah. If they want to have a lesson outside of camp, I'm happy to do that. So, you know, uh, that's an important piece of it. Mm-hmm. When you've got girls walking down the street together, they're so much safer, aren't they? So you have that camaraderie, you have that community, and there's a certain understanding that unless you are in it and know what it is, you can't really say. you got to feel it. And they're feeling it. And one thing I noticed um, is that if all of a sudden I see the girls touching each each other's hair and... Speaking and those kind of tones and they're tattooing, mm. they're drawing on each other's bodies or their guitars. Now you're getting into something that is really, really important. They don't get to do that in school so much, you know, cause yeah, you're competing with other girls. You're, you're not supposed to touch other girls, you know, all that kind of, you know, the, the taboos, but here at camp, they can talk about anything they want and they can pretty much do anything they want aside from hurting each other or scarring themselves. they are not so into that. I'm also wondering, did you
0: experience any, like, was there sort of like competition that was kind of pushed on you with other women as you were, you know? Oh,
1: yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that was part of our you know, the stri- uh we were striving to succeed, and part of it was to beat everyone mm-hmm. else out. But I think all bands have that, you know, that sort of ambition. Mm-hmm. Because uh, really, you shouldn't be in a band if you don't have that kind of <laughs> edge. Uh, kind of thing. I re- can I just give a an anecdote. Uh, May Pang is a good friend of mine, and as you know, she was with uh, John John Lennon for three years or mm-hmm. so, and she said, you know. Uh, John would hear a new artist and he would say, not going to make it not hungry enough, not not competitive enough, you know, so that was one of his, uh, you know, yardsticks to how far one could possibly you really got to want to do it. You really gotta wish you had written that song.
0: How much <laughs> I, I, I see that for sure, and that I, I think it's a yeah. lot because there is so much that you have to, <laughs> like you can't mess around, right? Mm-hmm. But also, I wonder how much of that is an internal, like you, you know, wanting to compete and feeling like you need to do a good job mm-hmm. versus an external pressure. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that?
1: I think it's it's mixed. I think I, all human beings have that, or if you don't have the that fire to succeed and to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, you shouldn't even be getting into that field. So it's built into yeah. us. The, the part that's difficult, and here I'm going to veer off into a, a little story. There was a an article in the New York Times Magazine, which I used to read avidly, you know, I had to read it every mm-hmm. week. And there was a story about a woman who decided finally to take an antidepressant. Okay. When well, she's taken this antidepressant and she's really succeeded, she realizes because she didn't care who she ran over. Mm right? Like beating everyone else out was the goal. So, you know, I think that the real success would be if you actually care about people all other people also. <laughs> and that, right. you know, like some of our so-called leaders right now mm. only care about themselves and the outcome for them. That's not the world I, I feel like I want to live in. And I don't think that's the ultimate music world. Right. The music world is collaborative hello i mean why do you want to be sitting in a room you know just playing by yourself or hitting two sticks together and thinking that's really groovy mm-hmm. what you know you want someone else to be experiencing it and being you know oh wow that's great mm-hmm. so it's a shared experience and that's one of the things i love about music and the fact that my sister and i you know gene and i played together from the jump and know the, the same exact repertoire is is uh you know, is really deep and really big for me. And her son Lee, who is right now living with us because they got caught here at the beginning of the pandemic, um, he knows my repertoire mm-hmm. and he knows where I'm coming from. So when I do these live live casts, I can just, you know, say, Oh, come on and just just do this kind of a beat and then we'll start and and he'll know what it is. So, you know, that kind of a shared experience, boy, he money can't buy that. Yeah. Now you can play in an orchestra Right. And you can play Brahms and Mahler and whatever. Those are written down works. But when you're, when you're out on the tightrope and you're, you're creating it in the second, in that second, it's a whole other experience. And that's what I talk about a lot when I have conversations with my musicians, musician friends. You got to be willing to fail. Mm-hmm. And that is a big part of our camps, of what I teach. You know, be willing to fail because there's also always that next moment. Right. And I've done enough gigs to know that you can be as rehearsed and as practiced and have all the right gear, the roadies, the PA, blah, blah, blah. You play the same thing one night as the next night, and one of them is a huge success, and the other one is you didn't turn on the audience. What was it? Who knows? Mm -hmm. It's the same darn thing. You just did the same thing.
0: Yeah. I, the, having that connection, though, that you're talking about, like, so both having that connection to the other players, like is where the real magic is at. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's part of the, the nice thing about playing live, too, because it's like there is that little like yes. you're on that tightrope, right? Something might fall off, right. you know, like or it could be totally, yeah. you know, like beautiful and magical and you never know how it's going
1: to go if it yeah. came out exactly. Well, you have to trust your bandmates and the audience yeah. because, you know, one of the things I tell the girls at our camps is, believe me, the audience does not want you to fail. Because if you fail, they fail. Mm-hmm. They're on your side. you got to believe that they want you to succeed. Even if you stumble and you pick yourself up and keep going, they love mm-hmm. that. So what I'm saying is music, in a way, you teaches you how to develop trust. You have trust with one person. Then you'll have it with three, maybe more. Then you'll have it with hundreds of people in your audience. Mm -hmm. You're all trusting you're going to have a common experience that's going to elevate you and make you feel better. And I love that about music. It really does teach you about trust. I know doing these girls' camps here has completely retaught me the value of trust. Mm -hmm. You can't do without it, really you know uh
0: all right so we're getting a little bit towards the end of the conversation here um i did want to in moving that towards the end if you were speaking to somebody in the music gear industry or in the in music industry more broadly who wanted mm-hmm. to make change around gender around racism sexism
1: heterosexism what would you tell them you know i don't really know how to approach a, a, a big picture thing mm-hmm. on that what i do know is If somebody tells me the truth and they're being honest and authentic, and I find out that that's who they are, what I'm saying is just do the next best thing for you and everyone else. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to try. You have to try. You have to give people the space to be who they are. That was the only thing that gave me uh, a chance. Because no one was going to accept me. I didn't even know I was half deaf. So I didn't know I was, you know, what what do you call, not debilitated, but.
0: uh, But You had a disability.
1: uh, Yes. And it's hidden. I have a hidden disability because people can't tell. People cannot tell. And I'm not trying to hide it. So, you know, having had the opportunity to just present myself how I am and find enough people to accept me. To accept that you don't have to like it accept it
0: um what else is coming up now for you and for ima
1: uh i'm doing the podcast series mm-hmm. and the virtual camps as we mentioned but the thing that uh, I, we haven't talked about is i'm turning my book into an audio oh, book. cool! are you recording and, it yes yeah, so, cool yeah yeah in the studio and i'm doing all the narration and the foley and creating musical files or finding stuff from before, because I'm kind of, uh, I am, I've been a, a, a sort of uh, an archivist mm-hmm. for a really long time. And then I found out that my father's mother was a real archivist. Mm-hmm. In fact, Pete Seeger got all the songs for his first album from her. What? <laughs> songs of Appalachia. Wow. Uh-huh. Songs of Appalachia. She was a serious archivist. And So I've got all that. I've got cassettes of the Svelts and I've got rehearsals of Fanny and all this stuff. So whenever I want everything, anything, I just kind of just go look into my files and I can. So Anne thinks that that's actually my most important work because everything that I've learned goes into it. I can record it. I can narrate it. I can blah, blah, blah. So that's exciting. And after I start putting out the podcast and the Four Mothers series, I'll probably start putting out the the audiobook. So that's pretty big. That's huge. You know? Yeah.
0: And that's, it's such a, I, mean, I feel like it's like a really a gift to have that uh, piece of, you know, musical history available, you know, multiple different formats and have the, the audio connected exactly. to that and everything. All right. Yeah. So, uh, June, how can listeners stay in contact with you or hear more from you?
1: Um, well, they can definitely go to the IMA website, IMA.org, and uh, June Millington at gmail.com. Should I give you the IMA phone number? <laughs>
0: the website <laughs> uh, your social security number and yeah
1: yeah 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 i'm on facebook so um i have two pages on facebook so actually three play like a girl and two june millington so you can you can find you're me. around you can find yeah me. yeah i am i really am awesome
0: this has been great thank you so so much for taking the time I had such a great time listening back to this interview again. June is a rock star in like the truest sense of the word, but also she's someone who really just like lights up a room and you can hear that about her in her voice. And it honestly, it's just such an honor to get to spend time with her at all. Um, And hopefully once this pandemic is done, I'll get to see her again. So what is on tap for our conversation today? You ask. Well, a while back on Instagram, I shared a few different, like, nagging wife, quote-unquote, guitar memes with a little commentary, and it seemed to stir some things up for folks. And as I would mentioned, it came up in my conversation with Karen from Big Ear as well. So I want to dig in a little bit deeper on that today. If you are somehow magically unaware of the type of meme I am talking about, I will share a few examples again on Instagram and my blog shortly. Or you can do a Google search on your own time for your for your own funsies uh, for wife guitar meme. Basically, there are any meme where a husband is hiding his gear purchases from his wife. That's the general vibe, right? So like, oh, I bought a black squire, and then I went and traded it in for something later, and my wife never noticed that I bought this expensive guitar, whatever, things like that. You know what I'm saying. All right. Of course, these are, like, frustrating for a number of reasons, but to me, a lot of this comes down to folks lacking in education on healthy relationships and the ways that gender stereotypes, sexual and relationship scripts, and expectations sort of play into that, basically, the way we're socialized, Right if you grew up in the United States, there's a pretty good chance that no one ever taught you what a healthy relationship looks like, at least not in school, because comprehensive sexuality education was likely not something that you learned in school. Maybe you did. Maybe you went to a really cool like magnet school or whatever or something. But most people did not get this. Comprehensive sex ed is applied very, I don't know, inconsistently across different places. So Let's talk about it. So, what does a healthy relationship look like? Aside from, of course, a healthy mutually beneficial and consensual sexual relationship, healthy relationships characteristics are actually very similar to what you'd expect out of a good friendship. They're really not that different. So thinking about it that way, I think is helpful. So, all right, here are seven things to look for in a healthy relationship. So first is trust. In order to have hard conversations, and I've talked about this a million times on the podcast at this point, uh, and and this is very important also to long-term relationships, like, for example, a marriage, You need to be able to trust the person that you are with. You also need to trust that the other person isn't going to betray you by, say, for example, buying loads of gear behind your back when you would both agreed to like pay off your credit cards or save money for a down payment on a house or something, right? All right. Number two, honesty. These all kind of run together. You can see how they're related. You need to be able to, you know, be open and honest about your needs and interests and of course that includes not buying large amounts of gear behind someone's back. But if, you know, if you had been honest on the first place and discussed it, then that would have been a whole other conversation, right? So honesty is important. 3. Communication. That's why this is important, right? You need to be able to regularly talk with your partner in a way that is kind and respectful. So having honesty and trust as a baseline, kind of, for the communication that you're able to have is an important first step. So conversations around financial transparency can come after that, right, once you have that all down. Then we have compromise. So just because you are communicating in an honest, trusting way does not mean that you will never disagree. There will be conflict and, like, learning how to handle disagreements in a healthy way uh, that means both of your needs. It's really important. It's a huge skill that you need to have. You know, if you're frequently disagreeing about how much money to spend on gear, that's a sign that you're going to have to come up with an agreement or compromise that works for both of you. All right. Five, equity. There should be balance in your relationship. There should be equity in decision making, shared responsibilities, and the, the power between both partners in a way that is agreed upon, right, and feels healthy and comfortable. It's especially important to be conscious of this if one of the per- persons in the relationship earns, like, a lot more money than the other person, or if maybe there are major, like, age, race, or other, like, power imbalances. So that's, that's important to note. All right, six. Mutual respect. Do you respect your partner? If you're sharing these memes, seems to me like the answer might be no. (laughs) Even though you probably would say, if I told you that, uh, that whatever you were doing was just a joke, right? That you really respect your partner. And I wouldn't believe you. That's just how it is. Uh, So sharing memes about hiding large financial transactions that paint the other person in a negative light is not respectful, let alone actually hiding the transactions. So there are multiple issues going on here that indicate a lack of respect. Last, but in no way least, is individuality. So both of you should 100% be allowed and encouraged to have your own interest and hobbies. And you should be able to spend an agreed upon and equitable amount on those hobbies, right? You have to talk about it, that's part of it, (laughs) for it to be agreed upon. And you should also have separate friends that you hang out with, besides just hanging out with each other. And I know the pandemic has made this a little bit more complicated, but pretend, go back to pretend land before that. All right, so of course you care about each other, right? That's good. And you should spend, you know, once again, an agreed upon amount of time doing things together. Perfect, great but not everything. And of course, I would hope that you would respect the interests and hobbies of your partner, and hopefully they would respect yours as well. And I will note that there are plenty of memes about wives hiding their purchases as well, which is also not okay. All of the above is important regardless of the gender of the person engaging in the behavior or the sexuality of the folks in the relationship. Not, not the issue. But of course, if you were in like a poly relationship, the conversation would be with multiple people, for example. But for traditional monogamous heterosexual relationships, which I presume most of the sharers of these memes are, all of these characteristics are also bound up in and tied to the binary nature of our gender socialization and related heterosexual relationship scripts. So because of the fact that we are taught that cis men and cis women have very different uh, characteristics. So, for example, cis men are supposed to be stoic, while cis women are supposed to be overly emotional, right? Like the opposite, basically, right? We know that that's not real. And the fact that these characteristics are often considered to be complementary, uh, it, it upholds this power imbalance between the genders, where genders then become... Uh, adversarial or like us versus them. I know that's not what Paul Abdul was getting at with opposites attract, but it's not real. Uh, the men are from Mars, like women from are from Venus thing. It's just not real and it is also not helpful. So my major question here is why would you possibly want to be in an adversarial relationship with someone who you're married to? That seems terrible. <laughs> your relationship should not be a war and your partner should not be your enemy. At the very least, you should be on the same team, right? Like, that seems key here. All right, I'll add, and I think that this is an important point, two additional issues with these memes. One, they assume that all wives, A, do not play music, and B, would not be supportive of your gear buying. Two, they assume that you were somehow forced to marry someone who did not support your gear buying habit. Of course, none of these assumptions are true. First, if you share these memes, if you make cis women feel like they are, you know, assumed not to be musicians, that's a problem, you know, or viewed as nags in some way. That is a problematic stereotype, and it's definitely not helping create a space where cis women feel included in the music world. Second, if you chose to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't support your hobbies, that is on you. If you had chosen to have any conversation about finances before you got married, this likely would never would have happened. No one would have forced you to marry this person that you now seem to despise. That was your choice. Why are you nagging and putting this out into the world? When, uh, it's basically complaining about you making a poor decision. All right. <laughs> In closing, stop sharing these memes and consider reevaluating your relationship. See a therapist individually, individually, go to couples counseling as well if you're having a hard time. I'm not saying you need to get a divorce. That's not what I'm saying. But you probably have some things to work out for yourself and as a couple to be happier and healthier in your relationship. And a therapist could probably help you with that. If you actually need help, you can search therapists in your area. And select by the type of insurance you have in Psychology Today's Therapist Finder. I'll put a link in the show notes. Zen Care and BetterHelp are other resources. If you have additional questions about finding a therapist, I am happy to do my best to help with the disclaimer that I am a social psychologist and not a therapist. I cannot provide you with treatment, but I can help you find someone who can. Please, everyone, please, please see a therapist. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts so more folks can hear about it. And if you want to reach out to me about anything, you can find me at hillarybjones.com. Thank you so much for
1: listening.